Now, as I prayed about the text I would preach this morning, my, my Lord, our Lord, kept leading my heart to one of my favorite accounts in, in uh, the Gospels, really one of my favorite accounts in, in all of Scripture. It's the story of a diminutive chief tax collector named Zacchaeus. It's one of my favorites because it is a little whimsical. It's a, a little dark, actually. But it's encouragingly providential and ultimately beautiful. It really has our Lord's fingerprints all over it. I hope that I can help you see just a little of the beauty of this amazing account of the salvation of this wee little man named Zacchaeus. Let me pray and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. I'm so thankful to be among your people, to be among your saints. Lord, anywhere you go in the world, anywhere we go in the world, we when we're among your people, we know we're among them. We can sense it. We can sense that you have sovereignly saved and that you, your Holy Spirit is dwelling within them. And Father, I pray this morning that you would just give me a voice, that your word would not return void, and that you would use it in the manner that you choose, even this morning, and for anyone who listens in the future. In Christ's name, amen. Well, in Luke 19, as uh, Pastor Bruce told you, 1 through 10, we're going to find three beautiful, beautiful and encouraging truths about genuine salvation. Our Lord Jesus, first, uniquely seeks the lost. We're going to see that. Second, He unashamedly summons the lost. And third, He undoubtedly saves the lost. Now, before we look at the first truth, I want us to take a few minutes to consider this passage's context. Look back in, if you have your scripture, if you could open them to Luke 18, verse 1. In Luke 18, 1 through 7, Jesus tells a parable demonstrating the need to pray without losing heart. In the parable, he tells of a widow who pestered a judge to give her judgment. The judge was evil. Yet he gave her judgment because she kept bothering him. Just just listen to our Lord's words in Luke 18, 6 through 8. And the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. Now will God not bring justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay it long over them? Now listen carefully to verse 8. I tell you, I tell you, that he will bring about just justice for them quickly. Then he says this. It says this, and I think, I think it frames the rest of the chapter and even into Luke 19, 1 and 10. He says this, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find that faith on the earth? Will he find that faith on the earth? Well, the following passages, including Luke 19, 1 through 10, may seem random to you. But I would argue that they teach us the type of faith Jesus looks for, true faith. Now, let me show you. Look down in 18, 9 through 14. Jesus told this parable to some people who were trusting in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Now, in this parable, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying these things to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. 
But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I want you to look at Jesus' words in Luke 18, 14. He says this, I tell you, this man went down to the house, his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, in this parable, the Pharisee of the Pharisee and the tax collector, Jesus teaches that humility is the hallmark of true faith. Look down at Luke 18, 15 through 17. In this account, people are bringing children to our Lord, and he and the, the disciples were rebuking them. But our Lord responded and called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God... But whoever... I'm sorry. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Now in this account of the children, Jesus teaches that true faith is a childlike faith. The next account of the rich young ruler, Luke introduces us to a rich young ruler who seems to have his life together. He has, he's, he's the perfect candidate for God's kingdom, right? Well, according to his witnesses, his own witness, that is, he kept God's commandments. But Jesus challenged him to sell all that he had, all that he possessed, and distribute it to the poor, and told him that you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Well, the issue really wasn't that he was rich. Because when he heard these things, he, he became sad, for he was extremely rich. But the issue wasn't that he was rich. It was that he didn't have true faith. He wanted, he loved his riches more than he loved the Lord. In this account, we learn that true faith is only possible when it originates from God. Because he says in Luke 18, 27, the things that are possible with people are not possible with people are possible with God. Look at Luke 18, 28-34. Peter reminded Jesus that they had left everything to follow him. And Jesus promises them, the disciples, that they would receive many times more in this life than the one to come. Then he took them aside and told them about his coming suffering and death on the cross. But according to Luke, the disciples understood of none of these things. He said, Peter said to this to him, Behold, we have left all that is our own. This is verse 28. He left all that is our own and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who's left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more at this time and in the age to come eternal life. But when he had took the twelve aside, he said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be completed. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have flogged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things. Then this statement was hidden, because the statement was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things that were said. Now in this account of the disciples' questions in Luke 18, we learn that saving faith, get this, saving faith is marked by trust in our Savior's promises. Now look down at your text in Luke 18, 35-43. Now all this is building up to Luke 19, and I think you'll see in a moment why. This is the account of the blind man who continually cried out for Jesus to make him see. 
He begged Jesus, the son of David, to have mercy on him. Now, he called him the son of David, and this title shows that he recognized Jesus as Messiah and King. In response, Jesus said to him, Receive your sights. Your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. In this account of the blind man, we find that true faith knows the power of God and is persistence. Now, if you're keeping count, that's six marks that we see in Luke 18 of true faith. Persistence is the key to true faith, this one mark. Humility is the hallmark of true faith. True faith is a childlike faith. True faith is only possible when it originates from God. And saving faith is marked by trust in our Savior's promises. And true faith knows the power of God, that's the blind man, and is persistent. Now let us look at this next account in some detail, the incredible account of Zacchaeus by studying the first truth that I gave you earlier. Now as we study, let's see if we see any of these marks of true faith. Let's pick up with our Lord uniquely seeks the lost. Our our Lord uniquely seeks the lost. Let's pick up in Luke 19.1, if you're following along in in your Bibles. He entered, and he entered Jericho and was passing through. This is our Lord. And behold, there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Now, as we approach Jesus' uh, encounter with Zacchaeus, we must see that this is on his final journey to, to Jerusalem and the cross. In Luke 9.51, Luke tells us that when the days for him to be taken up were soon to be fulfilled, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, we also need to recognize that Jesus was on the Father's sovereign timetable. Now, this is important for us to understand. John 14, 31, Jesus testified that he does exactly as the Father commands him. He does exactly as the Father commands him. According to the Father's sovereign plan, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem and the cross as he approached this wealthy Roman enclave named Jericho. Jericho. Luke 18.35. Now it happened that as Jesus was approaching Jericho. Now in our current verse, 19.1, Luke tells us that Jesus, that he entered and was passing through. Now as we read this, again, we need to know and we need to understand that this was no chance, no chance encounter. Jesus came to Jericho to meet a certain man whose name is Zacchaeus. Now, let's ask the question or answer the question, where is Jericho? Because I think it's important. This little town must not be confused, shouldn't be confused with the Jericho from Joshua in the Old Testament. The Old Testament Jericho is located a short distance from this New Testament Jericho, we'll call it. This Jericho, our Jericho of this study, is located, along with the old Jericho, is located just north of the Dead Sea and six miles west of the Jordan River. It is situated northeast of Jerusalem through a dangerous mountain passage that was described by Jesus in the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. Now, the city of Jericho was a walled city located in a generally dry and arid area, yet The city itself was fed by springs. 
Those springs produced ample amounts of water to carry, carried by aqueduct into the city. And as this water irrigated the area so that it bloomed magnificently. Jericho had beautiful gardens and was considered the garden city of the ancient world. Because of its attractiveness, you can imagine this, just like today, it drew the wealthy who came in for trade and for pleasure. This made it an enclave for the rich. It has been said that Jericho was the Eden of Palestine, the fairyland of the old world. Importantly, because of its location and wealth, there was a customs house there. Now, as I said earlier, as I said earlier, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through on his way to Jerusalem and the cross. Now look at 19.2. And behold, there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. Now I want you to notice, I want you to notice that Luke begins this account by saying, and behold. This was Luke's signal that we're about to read something especially magnificent. It is at this point that Luke tells us about a man in Jericho named Zacchaeus. Now, interestingly, Zacchaeus' name meant clean, innocent, pure, and righteous. But as we delve into his life, we're going to find that he was actually the exact opposite of those things. He was unclean, he was guilty, he was impure, and he was unrighteous. Sounds like a bunch of us, huh? Well, Zacchaeus was a man of disrepute. He was a man of the shadows. Now, when we think of Zacchaeus, we tend to think of the Sunday school stories, right? Which make him look innocent. Well, I want you to know that Zacchaeus was anything but innocent. He was anything but innocent. As a matter of fact, when you think of him, you might compare him to famous gangsters like Al Capone or Machine Gun Kelly. This was the type of guy that we're talking about here. Now, let us... Luke tells us then that, that he was a chief tax collector. Now, now the Jews, you may know, you may know, I'm sure you guys are well taught, you may know that the Jews are despised, uh, they despise tax collectors. They, they saw them as thieves and they saw them as extortionists. Uh, they were also seen by the Jews as being unclean because they worked for the hated Romans, the Gentiles, and they came in contact with them on a constant basis. And they also came in contact with money. They saw all of those things as unclean. Therefore, the tax collectors may have been even more despised than the Romans themselves. The the tax collectors were hired by the Romans to collect taxes for the empire. They they had a, a franchise, and they were expected by the Roman Empire to bring in a certain amount, which was passed on to Rome. Now, they could keep anything above and beyond that amount, and, and it's important for us to note that the Romans, the Roman army, they pr- protected the tax collectors. So, so they had, the people had no recourse but to pay what the tax collectors demanded of them. And they brutally, they brutally had their foot on the throat of the people who could do nothing about it. They could do nothing about it. And the people hated it. Now, I, I want to paint a picture here of how bad the tax collectors really were. Now, Zacchaeus himself was a chief tax collector. This meant that he was in charge of a group of tax collectors who were below him. Again, you might see him as a gangster who had a bunch of thugs answering to him and doing his bidding. And this particular thug, Zacchaeus, had the backing of the entire Roman Empire. That's that's who we're talking about here. As such, he would have been even more hated by the Jews. You might say, 
He was truly a man of the shadows, a man of the dark, a man of the darkness, and he was rich. He was rich considering the wealth of the area and the amount of trade that Luke tells us that uh, the amount of trade in the area because of where it was at and how it was situated and who was the res- who the residents were. Luke tells us that Zacchaeus was rich. Truly, he had to be filthy rich and incredibly powerful. Now, you may recall earlier from Luke 18, Luke told us about a rich young ruler who was also extremely rich. And, and when... In the aftermath of Jesus' encounter with that man, he declared to him, this is Jesus, that he says, see how hard, or how hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, some commentators try to say that Jesus is talking about a small gate in Jerusalem back here in Luke 18, but I don't think so. I actually believe he's talking about referring to passing a camel through the eye of a needle. Is that possible? No, it's not possible. You cannot pass a a camel through the eye of a needle. Right? Well, I believe that this is true. I mean, that, that Jesus is referring to this because we need to recognize that salvation is impossible for man. It is only possible with God. And he says that very thing in Luke 18.27. But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. So rich men can enter the kingdom of heaven. You can enter the kingdom of heaven because God can do that and will do that if you call out to Him. Well, I hope you see back with Zacchaeus that Zacchaeus, and I hope I've painted the picture here, that Zacchaeus was an extremely rich outcast who could not have been saved according to the Jewish system. It was, in fact, impossible for him. This paints that picture, right? He was desperate. Zacchaeus was desperate, having no hope for eternal life. And there was something else peculiar about Zacchaeus. Look down at your text in verse 3. It says this, And Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was. Now, he was desperate to see Jesus. The verb tense tells us that Zacchaeus was actively seeking a way to see him. Now, amazingly enough, he may have even been looking to meet Jesus for a long time. He must have heard through his network that Jesus was approaching the town. Most assuredly, he had heard of Jesus' teaching and his miracles with how... Word travels, and with all his contacts, he may have heard that Jesus had even healed the the blind beggar. Yet Zacchaeus was not driven by curiosity alone. It wasn't just that he wanted to see Jesus out of curiosity. You see, Zacchaeus was driven by a desire uh, to see see if Jesus could quench his deep thirst. You see, every sinner that that is being called by God has this deep thirst. And there can be no doubt that he was being called into salvation in this lush town with plenty of water. Zacchaeus was the thirstiest man alive. He longed for the water that would become the well of water springing up into eternal life. As Jesus Jesus was passing through the town, Zacchaeus was a desperate man. He was a desperate man. He was desperate because of his stature. Look at your text in verse, verse 3. Let's look at this. 
says that he was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. Now I want you to picture this. This man of the shadows, this man of the dark, had probably heard of Jesus for many months. He had many connections. But when the time came as Jesus was passing through, he couldn't see because he was a wee little man. And the crowd must have been thick and close. And so you could see Zacchaeus kind of bouncing around trying to figure out how to see. No one would give way so he could see. And he was desperate to see him. He must have been desperately going back and forth to see his, to see our Lord. And, and, and at that time, we have to understand that Jesus was enjoying great popularity with the people. Just a few weeks earlier, he had raised Lazarus from the dead just 15 miles from Jericho. So... Lazarus was wanting to see him. And he became even more desperate because of his situation. Now, we should note, we should note that the word translated stature refers to age elsewhere in the New Testament. Obviously, because of his situation and because of where he was at, Zacchaeus was not a young man because he was a chief tax collector. It takes time to climb the ladder. Yet he was small, like a child. And he had a major problem. He had to see Jesus. A dignified man concerned about appearances would have turned away and said, you know what, maybe they'll come another day. Yet that was not Zacchaeus' frame of mind. He had to see the Lord. He had to see Him. He would not give up. Look at your text in 19.4. So he ran on before and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see Him. For he was about to pass through that way. You see, this wealthy, ruthless man of the shadows ran ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree to see Jesus. This tree bore a fruit that poor folks ate, but more importantly, the tree had low branches. And even considering his height, Zacchaeus could have easily and quickly climbed into it. One commentator points out that this tree's large evergreen leaves could easily conceal an onlooker. So you can see him there in the trees looking through for the Lord. But that was no problem. The concealment was no problem for our Lord because he knew that Zacchaeus was waiting for the appointed meeting. Our Lord knew he was there. As we arrive at the end of this first truth, Jesus uniquely seeks the lost. I want to show you something. Earlier we saw the six marks of true faith. With Zacchaeus, do you see any of them? Zacchaeus was persistent in seeking the Lord. He climbed the tree, right? Zacchaeus was humbly seeking the Lord. You see that, right? The last one is my favorite. Did Zacchaeus have a childlike faith? Luke leads us like a horse to the trough to this one. You see, Zacchaeus was small in stature like a child. Luke uses a word that could refer to his age like a child. Guess what? Luke also shows us that Zacchaeus climbed a tree. Who climbs trees? I can't remember the last time I climbed a tree. Children. Children climb trees. He had a childlike faith. My question to you is, do you have a childlike faith in the Lord Jesus? Brothers and sisters, Zacchaeus sought the Lord persistently humbly and with a childlike faith. How are you seeking Him today? How are you seeking Him? I promise that when 
the Lord uniquely seeks you because ultimately that's what's going on here. Ultimately, that's what's happening. It's the Lord who's seeking Zacchaeus. Ultimately, when the Lord seeks you, your, your faith will exhibit these qualities. Let's look at that second truth that our Lord unashamedly summons the lost. Look at your text in verse 5. And when Jesus, and when Jesus came to that place, He looked up. He looked up. Now, there's three ways to look at this encounter. You could say, some liberal commentators say, well, that never happened. Luke made up this story as an illustration of faith. Uh, some people would say it happened, but it was just a chance encounter. just happened upon him. Others would say, including me, it was planned before the foundation of the world. And if you believe it's the third, you would be absolutely correct. The Apostle Paul tells us that He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. So when Jesus came to that place, He looked up and He called out to Zacchaeus. Can you imagine would be for a moment the crowd is pressing in on our Lord and His disciples. Everybody wants to see Him, possibly even touch Him. Then Jesus abruptly, abruptly stops and He looks up at, directly at Zacchaeus in that tree. And He says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. If nothing else, the crowd saw Zacchaeus, or saw that, saw that, it saw Jesus, saw Zacchaeus as well, but they saw Jesus as a great rabbi, a man sent from God. Earlier we saw the rich young ruler called Jesus a good teacher. But here's the deal. No Jew would have even acknowledged Zacchaeus' existence because he was hated and because he was unclean. It would have been shameful for Jesus to even acknowledge him in any way, much less talk to him publicly. But Jesus commanded him to come down. And I want you to notice the personal nature of this command. Our Lord calls Zacchaeus by his name. By his name. Not only did the Lord know that Zacchaeus was peering through the leaves of that tree. He knew his very name. And he knew it from the foundation of the world, from before the foundation of the world. He knows your name. He knows you intimately. He has numbered every hair on your head. And again, again, it would have been absolutely scandalous for Jesus to even address him. And even more shocking and even more scandalous, he told Zacchaeus that he would stay with him at his house. Not only did Jesus recognize Zacchaeus and call him by his name, but he would go to stay in his home. You cannot imagine how scandalous this is. Zacchaeus immediately obeys the Lord. He immediately obeys the Lord. Look back at your text in 19.6. What did Zacchaeus do when the Lord called out to him? The text tells us he hurried and he came down and he received him gladly. Jesus lovingly commands Zacchaeus, we'll call him Z too, Z as well. He he commanded him to hurry and come down. And, And what does Zacchaeus do? Yeah, he immediately obeyed. He hurried and he came down. 
I love that Luke tells us that he hurried. I hope you love that too. I remember climbing trees around dinner time when I was a child. If my mother called out it was time to eat, you can bet I hurried and came down. That's exactly what Zacchaeus did. That's exactly what he did. Brothers and sisters, when Jesus calls you to come and follow Him, don't hesitate for one moment. He expects you to hurry. He expects you to hurry. Not only did Zacchaeus obey and came to come down to and coming down, Zacchaeus received him gladly. You see, Zacchaeus had great joy in his heart as he received the Lord. It was a joy that understood his former wretched state. He knew that everything was different now. You may recall in Luke 18.17, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Luke uses that same exact root word in the Greek to describe how Zacchaeus received Jesus. Do you not see the connection? By receiving Jesus gladly, like a child, Zacchaeus received the kingdom of God. Now you may be wondering about those who are watching this amazing scene. You know, if you and I were there, we'd be celebrating this, wouldn't we? Well, the grumblers are going to grumble, right? The grumblers are going to grumble. Look at your text in verse 7. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. The onlookers just couldn't handle what they were seeing. They couldn't stand the fact that Jesus would associate with this unclean and rotten sinner. The act of inviting Himself to be the guest of this hated the chief tax collector, he, he was a notorious sinner who had robbed nearly everybody in the city by exacting exorbitant taxes from them. This was too much for their sensibilities. How could it be? But it's critical for us to see that Jesus not only associated with sinners, He saves them. He saved them. I want you to recognize Zacchaeus was saved at the moment he obeyed Jesus' command. Actually, you could say he was saved before the foundation of the world, but he only understood it the moment he climbed down from that tree. The Holy Spirit had already done His work in preparing him. You know, all that seeking and desperately seeking him, that's the Holy Spirit working in his heart. He had been given the gift of faith Therefore, Zacchaeus simply acted on it. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. As you consider this incredible scene, the question is, are you rejoicing the salvation of this rotten sinner? Our Lord said in Luke 15, 7, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who don't need repentance. Think of the most rotten person you know. It's easy to think about Zacchaeus, but think about the most rotten person you know. What if the Lord miraculously saves them? Have you been praying for them? Would you be repulsed by the thoughts? 
Let me ask you this, even closer to home, even closer. Do you realize that you are just as rotten outside of Christ, that is? Let's look at that last truth. And here's, here's the, the big one. Our Lord undoubtedly saves the lost. And with the emphasis on all those words, undoubtedly saves the lost. It's all emphasized there. Look back at your text in Luke 19.8. But Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have exhorted anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. I would, I would call this the first fruits of Zacchaeus' salvation. Joy and repentance. Joy and repentance. First, let me remind you of the joy that exploded in Zacchaeus' heart. Just stop and think for a second. If you were sitting on those limbs and our Lord stopped and looked up at you and said, Come down, whatever your name is, Brandon, Pastor Bruce, come down. Can you imagine the joy in your heart that would explode, that even acknowledged you? You see, Zacchaeus had been weighed down by the sorrow over his sin. Yet when Jesus called him, joy bursted from his heart like water rushing from a dam. It was unbridled joy. Now we see the second fruit of his salvation. God called Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus responded by seeking after him, even to the point of climbing a tree, Then Jesus called him down from the tree and and Zacchaeus joyfully believed and and now they were on the way to Zacchaeus' house or they had just arrived, Luke doesn't really tell us, or they were about to enter, but at some point the rumbling of their grumbling, that that rhymes, doesn't it? The rumbling of their grumbling became such a roar that Zacchaeus turned around and faced the crowd. I, I can imagine he stopped considering the the accusations that were being thrown at him. He desired to show the truth of the change of his heart. He desired to show that he was truly repentant. So he blurted out this profession of repentance. It's an earth-shaking admission and confession. He would give half of his possessions to the poor, and if he had extorted or defrauded anyone of anything, and the grammar tells us that, that Zacchaeus knew that this was true, that he, was a, that he had defrauded people. He knew that he was a thief. And it's interesting to me that in Mark's account of the rich young ruler, so Luke had an account, Mark has an account, in that account tucked in there, in the rich young ruler, he adds to the list of commandments, do not defraud. Do not defraud. It's always been interesting to me. Why did the Lord put that in there? I believe he did that with the rich young ruler because that man had defrauded people. And that's how he got rich. And only he and God knew. And those he cheated. But it was, this was at the heart of his sin, this do not defraud. It was the way he had built his wealth. And let me tell you, I think it was the same way for Zacchaeus. Do you all see the parallel here? It was the same for Zacchaeus, but he had publicly defrauded people. Everybody knew it, and he had done it to build his personal wealth. Everyone knew that that's what he had done. 
And as he was walking with Jesus, no doubt he had heard the audible grumbling of the crowd and he responded in repentance, showing that his heart had truly changed. Looking back at your text, when he says, if I have extorted anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. You need to recognize that he intended to do that on the spot. It wasn't something that he just said and sometime you'll get around to it. No, he wanted to do it right then. He understood Numbers 5, 6 that says when any man or woman commits any of the sins of mankind acting unfaithfully against the Lord, that person is guilty. It's exactly what he understood in his heart and he wanted to make it right. He also followed the command in Exodus 22, 1 and if a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the sheep and four sheep for the sheep for the sorry, five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. Paired paired with his pledge to give half of his possessions away. This absolutely proved Zacchaeus' change of heart. In other words, Zacchaeus was truly and completely repentant. In effect, he was saying, as a result of coming to faith in my Lord, I shall give half of all I own and restore fourfold of all that I have extorted. Beloved church, Maranatha Baptist Church, I'm always, always my church, I'm, I'm always, brethren, beloved, I hope you all get that. Brothers and sisters, joy and repentance are the fruits of true faith, are the fruits of true salvation. I want you to think of how much trust it would have taken for Zacchaeus to make this very vow. Think about that. For Zacchaeus to do this was incredible. And I want to remind you that earlier I said one of the marks of true faith from Luke 18 was saving faith is marked by trust in our Savior's promises. You begin to live in a way that shows that you trust His promises. Now with all that in mind... Just look at Jesus' words in Luke 19, 9. It says to him, today, today, salvation has come to this house. Today, today. Let me say that again, today. Brothers and sisters, let me give you one simple application here. Salvation is for today. When Jesus called Zacchaeus, little wee Zacchaeus, down from that tree, he immediately believed and obeyed. When Jesus calls us to come down from our high-handedness, from our pride, when he calls for us to receive him, he wants us to believe, he wants us to obey, he wants us to come quickly, and when we do, he will not disappoint. He beckons, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest for your souls. Look back at your text in Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Even with all that Zacchaeus had done, I hope that I have proved to you today that Zacchaeus was a wretched and rotten sinner. 
Here's the uncomfortable truth. I said it earlier, but I'm going to say it again. He was just like you and just like me. I'm reminded of, I wrote this before, the sermon before this morning, I I hope you know. I'm reminded of John Newton's amazing and beautiful hymn, Amazing Grace. We sang it over in the other building. Reminded of that. I used to sing it, my dad, I used to sing it with my dad to stand up on stage, you know, when I was a young tyke, I'd sing Amazing Grace with him. Just not 15 minutes from here. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Brothers and sisters, if you don't know the Lord, then I pray that you'll consider this little man, Zacchaeus. Pray that you'll consider how the Lord saves the lost. And if you don't believe you're lost, you can't be saved. You've got to get them, get them lost before they can be saved, right? But if you're here today and you know Him, I hope you can see the beauty incredible beauty of this incredible tale of our Lord saving this rotten man. This rotten man, and I, and I need to be fair to Zacchaeus, right? Because the Lord made him new. The Lord made him new. He is a new creature in Christ, is he not? He made that rotten sinner a new man, and he makes us new creations as well, does he not? I hope you recognize that our only hope is that Jesus actually came to save lost wretches like you and me. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for this opportunity to consider the story of this tax collector, this chief tax collector. How scandalous it would be it was that the Lord Jesus even talked to him, much less stayed in his home, much less saved him. I didn't hit on this, O Lord, but you said he, he too became a son of Abraham, or is a son of Abraham. O Lord, O Lord, you and you alone are the author of salvation. You and you alone saved the lost. As it says in Luke 18, what is not possible with man is possible with God. You can save the lostest. Lord, I had some thinking of Paul, the apostle, who said that he was the foremost of sinners. Oh Lord, we're so thankful that you're in the business of saving the lost. In Christ's name, amen.